0: Hello everyone, today's special episode explores disability in 19th century Paris and France in general. Twelve million French people, roughly one-fifth, have registered disabilities, while in the United States that figure is almost one-fourth. Disability is an incredibly important topic as it affects the lives of over a billion people worldwide. Yet, there has been a striking lack of historical work on the topic. This could be in part because people with physical and mental disabilities had a more difficult time creating records of their lives. Another is that there are relatively few historians working in this field. Thankfully, Professor Catherine Kudluck sat down with me to talk about this overlooked topic. After two decades at the University of California, Davis, Catherine Kudlick became professor of history and director of the Paul K. Longmore Institute on Disability at San Francisco State University in 2012. She has published a number of books and articles in disability history, including Reflections, The Life and Writings of a Young Blind Woman in Post-Revolutionary France, and Disability History, Why We Need Another Other in the American Historical Review. She oversaw completion of Paul Longmore's posthumously published book, Telethons, Spectacle, Disability, and the Business of Charity, and co-edited The Oxford Handbook of Disability History with Michael Rembus and Kim Nielsen. As director of the Longmore Institute, she directed the public history exhibit, Patient No More, People with Disabilities, Securing Civil Rights, and co-hosts Superfest International Disability Film Festival. Her current work blends research and advocacy in the service of public history where the major goal is pursuing the Longmore Institute's mission to convince the world that society is better because of disabled people. for sitting down with us, Professor Kudlick. Can you tell us a little bit how you came to be involved in writing about disability through history?
1: Oh, my goodness. Um, that's a huge question. Um, I started out being very interested in history of medicine when I um, did my, wrote my dissertation on cholera epidemics in the 18th, uh, the 19th century and got very interested in the structures that were in place about medicine and society and culture. Um, but the other piece of it was that I have a vision impairment that I've been, you know, kind of wrestling with in lots of levels my whole life, and kind of learning, you know, what it meant. I've had it my whole life, so it's not—it wasn't something new that happened to me that I had to adjust to. But I kind of spent a lot of time denying it and pushed through, pretending that there was nothing going on. And then, as I kind of became more aware of it, and it wasn't getting worse, I just became more aware of it as a thing that gave me some insights into society and culture, and it might have even influenced my decision to do medical history in some subliminal way, because all historians, you know, we work on what interests us at some level and connects us, and that's why we engage with the topic. Uh, So I started really kind of saying, wow, there's this thing that's different about me. Um, But the thing that totally propelled me into that world was, um, it's a little bit cynical, actually, um, I uh, was denied uh, a job uh, at Barnard College. I've written about it. I've published about it in the New York Times, if you want to read about it. And it. I didn't publish about it as a you know, tell-all and, and destroy the institution. I just have you know, grappled with this story my whole life. When I was denied um, the opportunity to present myself like other candidates, they were asking me to do other things that they weren't asking other candidates to do, and I refused to do it. So um, that kind of, you know, when I didn't get the job, and I knew I wouldn't, um, and I was a visitor at Barnard College at that point, so I'd been there for a year. People knew me, and I was being, you know, pretty honest about my vision impairment and things like that, Um, but I decided, you know, hey, um, this is really, really terrible. It's, you know, it's a form of discrimination. It It really kind of punched me in the gut. And I decided that, you know, I wanted to understand more about this experience that happened to me. Um, But I also, you know, I really liked New York City. Uh, It was a great place for somebody with a vision impairment to live. There was, you know, great public transportation. There was, you know, I had a lot of friends. It was, you know, something I really wanted. So I thought, well, disability and my vision impairment got me kicked out of New York. Well, I'm going to maybe, maybe there's a way it could get me back in. Um, And it was the... Uh, late 80s, early 90s. Um, and there was lots of conversation about identity and identity politics and, and all of that. And I thought, oh, how weird. You know, I've thought about uh, women's history, LGBTQ history, you know, I've thought about issues of race and colonization and, and all of these things. But nobody was talking about disability. I thought, gosh, that's, I wonder if some similar things are at work. So I started just kind of reading around just to see what was there and there were you know things scattered about but there was no real movement and I thought oh my goodness this is huge this, there's something so big here that nobody's thought about and by that point I was you know th- in the thick of my dissertation modification process of turning it into a book which was published in 1996 but meanwhile I'm thinking wow there's a big world out here that nobody knows about so that's how I got there
0: Well, let's dive a little bit into that because I'm not too surprised that there hasn't been that much writing on disability because it seems like the farther back you go, people are more demonized, there's less knowledge of scientific works, and also those people with disabilities have much less of a voice. So, how did you go about doing this research and uncovering these stories?
1: Uh, So... I mean, first of all, I think, you know, disability might, might not have had the label disability until fairly recently. So, um, <clears throat> you know, that doesn't mean it didn't exist. It's, you know, I mean, clearly, if you look at certain things further back, like poverty, um, hospitals, institutions, um, a lot of the religious materials from way far back actually engaged with disability quite a bit. And it's you know, it's all over the Bible, it's all over, you know, the canonical text that people talked about, but nobody thought to look at it with this more modern lens, and I think that's that's the difference. I am a you know eight, late 18th, early 19th century historian. I kind of bridge those two centuries when I can. And I felt like the institutional records were very, very strong. And um, I started looking, um, and I was originally gonna be writing about the history of blind people and blindness because it was so immediately connected to my own experiences. And um, I did a little digging and uh, discovered that there was a scholar in France named Zina Végon, Weygand, who was um, who published or has, was publishing a series of books about the intersection of medicine and society and culture and blind people, and uh, so I reached out to her and wrote up, you know, one of those letters that we write as young scholars, you know, right. to people. And, and um, first of all I didn't even know she was her stuff was signed, her early stuff was Z Z Wigand, or she written me back as Z Wagond and I had no idea whether she was a man or woman or whatever, <laughs> but so I, I still have the first letter that I wrote to her saying, Dear Monsieur, because you kind of assume that everybody in France is Monsieur or whatever, and she wrote me back and you know, informed me that she was, you know, doing this work. Um, and she said, Let's get together and meet. Um, And it turned out I was in Paris uh, doing some research over the summer, this summer, I forget, it was back in maybe summer of 95, and it just so happened I was staying with friends that lived right around the corner from her. So we got together and had lunch, and the lunch, the first lunch was like three, four hours of just blah 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 blah, blah, talking, talking. She'd done all this amazing work. She hadn't found that many people to talk to about it. Here was this young, eager American scholar wanting to talk to her about it, but also. you know, it was probably a little bit of threatening for both of us to find that person that's doing the thing that you thought you were gonna do. And you you know, at one level you wanna be alone and at another level you're kinda like, whoa, it's kinda lonely here. (laughs) And uh, we just totally connected. And uh, we've been close friends uh, over the years. We've collaborated on a book uh, called Reflections, The Life and Writing of a Young Blind Woman in uh, post-revolutionary Paris. And that came about because Uh, I I was working in an archive, and she was working in an archive, and we both simultaneously, or she had before, but she she had discovered this document by this woman, Therese Adele Husson. And I had discovered it, and I was talking to her about it, and we just got into this conversation, like, oh, what do you know about her, what do you think, da-da-da. And I thought it was such a great text. I thought, you know, we should publish this and maybe try to find you know, some of the background story. And Zina is this amazing, just totally dogged researcher. She leaves no stone unturned and she's really, really creative. So she doesn't just go the usual track. She'll think about reaching out to scholars of this and scholars of that. And she just wants to nail down and create this universe. So it was a really great combination because I was wanting willing to make the the kind of conceptu- some of the conceptual leaps of saying, let's try to be uh, let's let's be speculative here. And she'd get a little nervous about the speculation. And so I'd be patient while she, or, and, and a little impatient too, while she needed to nail down the 10 things that convinced her it was okay to be speculative. But whatever. But we then we had this agreement that we, we had this story. We were finding things. We started working together. We were finding things in um, some of the archives in France from like the Association Valentin UI, which is one of the main blind archives, Um, the Institut National des Jeunes Aveugles. We were also working in the Archives National, the Bibliothèque Historique de Paris, and just lots of different, uh, and the Académie de Medicine, all the different sort of places looking, trying to put together the life of this person. And we had a lucky break where um, we figured out that uh, this woman, whose name was sort of similar Um, turned out to be Adele Husson. And, uh, you know, she had, uh, in her manuscript, she had said, don't marry, this is a disaster for blind women, this is a horrible thing. Um, And she married, and she had a different name. So, you know, it was just kind of one of these things we figured out then that she was a writer who had published more uh, books than Georges Sand and was actually as widely read as Georges Sand. Um, her novels were terrible. So, you know, it's not a, not a, you know, she was no Georges Fond, but it's interesting that somebody like that, you know, wasn't more known at the time. Um, and, but anyway, Zena and I had a little uh, friendly competition going. So we'd drawn up a proposal for this book. And we had we said okay we're going to each go to publishers um, I'll go to publishers in the U S she would go to publishers in um, France and whoever found the publisher first that's the, that's where the book would first appear so I won nice. uh, the Americans were a little bit more receptive to this this new sort of topic we I happened to um, meet at a one of these conferences and it really does pay to go to conferences and talk chat up the publisher representatives that come. Um, I met a very young uh, Nico Fund, who's the now editor-in-chief of Oxford, but at the time he was editor-in-chief at, uh, in chief at uh, NYU Press. And somehow he got it, and he t- said, I'm going to take a risk, I'm going to do it. We got the book out, and then a few years later we had it translated into French, and um, that's how the book ended up appearing. But it was a wonderful opportunity to work with somebody else, share conversations, and not be competitive, to really enjoy the process of creating this history together.
0: Well, fantastic. So I'm glad you mentioned your book because I want to dive uh, directly into that. So your book, Reflections, the Life and Writing of a Young Blind Woman in Post-Revolutionary France, tells the story of a woman who in the 1820s, wrote a book before Braille was invented. Can you tell us how this blind person envisioned French society?
1: So uh, I want to talk a little bit about her process first, because that's kind of caught up in part of your question. Um, She uh, wrote this by dictating it. She kind of was taken over, or taken under the wing of um, French nuns, basically. She came from a very... Uh, not poor family, but an artisanal family. She was not an aristocrat by any stretch of the imagination. So that's one of the things that's very fascinating about her story because she's not some wealthy person that felt she was entitled to tell her story. She was somebody that just through pure audacity and pluck and probably a little bit of obnoxiousness too, um, said, I am a blind woman. I'm, um, I'm becoming a burden to my family. I want to go make my way in Paris as a writer, and I'm going to do it. And so she, you know, at the age of uh, 18, 20, 20 years old, uh, made her way to Paris by herself um, as a blind woman. You know, and just imagine, you know, the, it was around 1820, so you, you can just imagine the, the the climate of Paris with all the, you know, noise and filth and horses and uh, carts and and all of that and all the unscrupulous people that were trying to take advantage of everybody else and um, she gets to Paris and is taken in um, kind of by some sisters and you know that that really were helping her out and she ultimately does make her way as a writer by herself Um, she published like I said um, more than Georges Sand I think she published something like 14 Truly terrible novels. <laughs> um, by the time she died, in t- at the age of 29, in a fire, and um, so sh- her take on French society, she was trying to give advice more to uh, blind women in particular. So she's picking up on this current of uh, a society. It's post Restoration France. It's sort of on the eve of the um, you know the July Monarchy. Um, so it's this period when conservatism had come back into favor, and, and I think she was probably fairly conservative in terms of her uh, politics, in part because she'd been raised by these, um, you know, sisters, and kind of she she benefited uh, from their, you know, charity and other things. But she was also a feminist. And I actually, in my early uh, teaching of this book, and before we had even published it, I would give the manuscript, the translated manuscript, to my undergraduate classes, my undergraduate French history classes, my undergraduate women's history classes. And I would just ask them, you know, I'd say, read it and tell me if you think she's a feminist. And it was so fascinating because nobody agreed. And Mm. they really came at loggerheads with each other, you know, in a a positive way that you get when there's disagreement in a class. And they really, you know, did debate about whether or not this was so. And there were elements of her that were basically saying, um, you know, you've got to, you know, cast your lot with... um, a society that's going to protect you and so you don't want to alienate your protectors you don't want to um, be too uh, radical or anything and yet her text is basically saying you know blind women do not marry because if you marry you're going to if you marry a sighted guy he's going to have really weird motives and you don't want to deal with that and if you marry a blind guy, you're neither of you are going to have any prospects whatsoever, and you're going to get lost. You're going to get stuck, and you're going to have terrible things happen. You might even die in a fire. She she even says stuff like that. And she, she and her husband, that she ultimately married, um, a blind man, uh, were um, in a fire. Um, they have two. They had two children, but what, by what we can surmise, she dies in the. The two children we assumed did as well, but there's no records of what happened to them. And he uh, went on to, he survived and went on to marry a sighted woman and became a fairly well-known inventor in um, French sort of uh, accessibility technology in a way, early versions of it, like creating a a kind of typewriter that blind people could use to write to each other and... and, um, Things like that, and again, by that point, Braille was fairly well known. I think he did know Louis Braille and um, all of that. But he became quite, um, you know, well known in that in those circles at that time. But she, you know, um, you know, died because of her beliefs. In some ways, she was fiercely independent. Oh, the other thing to know about her is she tried to um, secure a place in the blind. Uh, there was a blind institution called the of It's right in Paris behind the Bastille. There's a big blind hospital there, and then there's a lot of records and a lot of um, uh, research that people have done there, although in recent years it's been closed to the public, the archives part, which is heartbreaking. But uh, that's another story. Um, But anyway, they... uh, had these residences and they still do actually for blind people to live and they're kind of taken care of and you have to apply and, and you get, you know, room and board and, um, you know, uh, you're in a pretty secure environment. But so she wrote and appealed to, uh, be let in to be living in this, this residency at the Council, And she was denied, uh, by one of the Catholic benefactors, and we believe pro- some she did something to alienate him, and uh, the, scrawled across the letter um, is the, of her, you know, application and the refusal or something is that this woman is, um, you know, of bad faith and she's probably duped a number of people, and uh, so she was basically flat out rejected, and that's probably what cost her life down the road and also she was uh living with a blind man and that was considered kind of you know not appropriate you
0: mean living before marriage Mm,
1: you know it's interesting they were married so um i just think that the fact that he was blind you know two blind people was seen as in fact i think the at that particular time in the 1820s, early 1820s, yeah, throughout the 1820s, there were laws in place that basically said there that rules in place, I should say, um, that said that blind people could not live in the um, in, together in this residency. So
0: interesting. Yeah. Sick of being upsold at gyms. transition point then because I wanted to move on from talking about an individual blind person to talking about blind communities Mm. because you talked a little bit about in your book about these communities how did these communities form how did they interact with the larger public because I imagine that would be pretty difficult in 19th century France to create a community of blind people
1: well, there were a few things that worked in favor of that. One was um, institutions. So, for example, you had the very beginning, starting in 1786, you had Valentin Uy, H-A-U-Y, who um, had created one of the first schools, in, the, in fact, the first school in the world for blind people. And his idea was going he, he wanted to teach people who had no other means of being educated and this was part of the larger enlightenment project and humanitarian project you know the same thing that gave uh, rise to the conversations about elevating people of color elevating the poor you know um, elevating women Um, and this is the exact same impulse and it's always fascinated me that somehow french historians have never connected this with some of these amazing conversations around literacy for blind people because it's the same exact impulse and, and and gives some interesting insights into that, that they might not get other places. Um, but um, uh, this particular school then, you know, brought people together and it taught them how to read. And it was before um, Braille. Braille was basically came of into wider use in the 1830s and 40s within the schools. So this again was before that. But Uh, we came up with a he was a linguist actually um and he came up with a system of raised letters that was was kind of interesting because it was basically print letters that stuck out pretty far from the page um they take up a ton of room i mean braille's a much more efficient system because it takes up a lot less room and you can put your finger over you know letters and entire words whereas With raised type, you're kind of having to say, okay, is this an E, is this an R, is this a, you know, all of these questions that you're going to raise. But it still worked. And um, he taught had these um, students working in in these schools produce the books that would teach other blind people how to read. And so it became this kind of self-perpetuating system that's kind of fascinating and really great. And he then... um, you know, uh, generation upon generation of students went through this school that became the Institut National des Jeunes Aveugles de eventually. Um, it's still there today. It's more um, like so many uh, blind schools in all parts of the world. It's kind of more for uh, blind people with multiple disabilities and the blind population has been more fully mainstreamed um, than was the case back in the, you know, 18th and early 19th century. But nonetheless, that was one place. The other place was at these residencies, as I mentioned. Um, a lot of musicians, um, people that worked in, you know, the or sang in choirs, or, you know, all sorts of different groups uh, would come together in that way. And, you know, an amazing word of mouth, an amazing set of connections. And so, um, in some ways, blind people were completely isolated, and yet, they were that isolation is really what brought about a sense of community. Um, and then you asked about the the sighted world and how they saw it. It's interesting if you look at a few of the key um, Enlightenment texts um, where they mention blind people. Some of the writers like Diderot, um, Montesquieu, um, they talk about these communities actually, hmm. and um, especially Montesquieu. He has a whole thing in the Persian Letters about um, this, these communities I've got a I have a piece on this that I really want to publish at some point and I keep wanting to get back to it but I never have I gave it as a conference paper but um, it's so fascinating because they saw it happening and they're so intrigued by it and they see this amazing, group of people that are coming together and actually teaching sighted people how to do things. And so our own ideas around disability have kind of prevented a lot of scholars from understanding like, whoa, the tables are totally turned in some situations and nobody knows to, to look at, that, at it that way. So it's, a, it's an amazing uh, you know, transformation in thinking that people are just not aware of.
0: Well, to add one more interesting aspect to this, what I find fascinating is that at this time, France was developing these relations with blind people, at the same time going through multiple revolutions. I mean, from 1789 to 1871, France experienced a revolution about every 20 years or so. So how did this affect the progression of welfare, uh, particularly because welfare was in the hands of the church, but then it became a prerogative of a secular state. Mm-hmm. So how did the revolutions and this gradual change from church welfare and to secular welfare affect uh, disability welfare?
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's very interesting. I mean, in some ways it's quite different because of the, the such clearly religious Uh, Catholic roots you know that's kind of sets in motion a whole set of not just practices but attitudes toward people with disabilities in France that you wouldn't have say have in England or Germany or the United States so France is unique in that way it's probably more like well it's interesting maybe a little bit like Spain or a little bit like Italy because of those Catholic roots and yet the secular state develops so much more fully in France um, afterwards so it's this really strong Catholic foundation with this secular uh, kind of uh, ideas in there. So what that basically means for people with disabilities is there's this um, sense of wanting to help them and do something to make their lives better, um, and yet an imperative that somehow they need to be taken care of in ways that make them independent and yet the independence is always a little bit suspect like there's a bit of the pity factor always kind of comes comes seeping in and sort of it makes it very hard for people with disabilities to uh, kind of get out of that nice comfy situations situation Um, in the United States it's sort of different in that you know you have these religious roots but it's the protestant religious roots and they basically say you know get out we don't want to make we don't want to give charity to you we're not going to give you enough because we believe that each person should try to you know pull themselves up by the bootstraps and make their lives better and you know we're not going to give charity in that way we'll give a little bit we'll give enough so that whatever but we're not going to give you institutions, and we're not going to give you a nice soft feather bed to, uh, you know, kind of exist in society. The idea is we'll keep it, we'll make disability so unappealing that these people are going to want to try to fight, not to cure a disability necessarily, but to um, get into situations where they're going to take care of themselves, and we will not bear that burden
0: So another area that you specialize in is urban disease outbreaks, and here I'm referring to your book, Cholera in Post-Revolutionary France, where you talk about the outbreaks in 1832 and 1849. For those who aren't familiar with cholera, can you explain why this was so terrifying for industrial-era cities in the 19th century?
1: Sure. Um, Cholera was the, the ultimate disease of modern societies, in a way, because it... Uh, you know, it existed forever in different parts of the world, notably sort of uh, India, parts of India, and part, um, you know, that it kind of, you know, existed in this environment. And once transportation became quicker and um, people were going more places and all that, that's what it kind of enabled its spread. Um, it's a very, very contagious disease. It spreads through water, Um so it's, it's spreading through, you know, human contact by bringing water and drinking contaminated water and people who don't wash their hands, things like that. So, and you basically die of dehydration brought on by um, diarrhea and vomiting and just your body just depletes itself of all its fluids. And... For people that were kind of trying to pretend that their society was becoming more and more modern and more and more industrial and there was this idea that progress had come to Europe and Europe was becoming more civilized and wasn't it great and they were the pinnacle of the world in this horrible, ugly disease shows up and kills people randomly in ways that they didn't know they didn't understand you could have one street uh, die off you could have rich people dying poor people dying there was no there was no real sense it felt very capricious and very weird and so it was this ultimate challenge to civilization to what was modern to all of those things and it's precisely those things that brought cholera into the homes of people in this modern world so that's why it was so terrifying to people
0: so a point that you and other scholars make is that cholera was important in developing class relations because of its devastation of particularly working-class communities can you go into how this disease helped define class lines in 19th century France
1: yeah. Um, well, my my particular argument is that it's about sort of um, representations that the idea and this was, you know, this is my dissertation work in the 1980s when the, these ideas were very kind of hot and exciting about like, you know, the, how you uh, represented something and told stories about it was almost as important as the biology or the, um, you know, the, the sort of physical realities of what was going on. And initially, cholera seemed to be attacking only the poorer districts of the city, and that's in part, because um, this is Paris in my book, um, and this was in part due to the fact that the, the contamination of water was happening there more than in the wealthier households, at least initially, and so... With this turmoil of revolution and some parallels in terms of chronology, so you had cholera epidemics in 1832 and 1849, and you had major revolutions in 1830 and 1848, people were becoming very conscious of the fact that there might be some connection. They started to raise the question. And so they start depicting uh, the poorer people as forms of cholera or uh cholera being a revolutionary being and cholera bringing revolution and revolution bringing cholera you know just sort of seeing all of those things and it just kind of worked its way into this bundle of fear and anxiety and um kind of worry over what was happening to french society at this time so uh the epidemic because class relations were really the salient issue, this is the time when more and more people are moving into Paris from um, outside the city in search of jobs and, you know, huge period of immigration, all of that. Um, You have an amazing moment when people are starting to say, whoa, we don't have the infrastructure here. We don't have any of the, um, uh, anything in place that where we can actually battle... uh, an epidemic, let alone all of these people that are coming in. So they see it as part and parcel of the, the same thing.
0: Yeah, and it seems like it is during this period where there's a move away from a religious view of the world towards a more secular view that we begin to depict people, uh, classes, races in a medical lens rather than in a moral one.
1: Uh, yeah, I agree with that. I think if I were still working in that domain, though, I would probably be less um, less likely to see that as such a stark transition. And I, I think even in my dissertation and book, I saw this as way more complex. I think the, the, the transition from religious to secular authority, I think, is... Uh, in terms of labels, it's fairly clear, but in terms of people's beliefs and in their coping and, and all of that, I think that religion still permeates uh, cultures in ways that we're not fully um, cognizant of or, or even willing to acknowledge. I think that you know um, when a lot of us were doing these particular scholarly studies in the 1980s, 1990s, um, the society that we lived in was resoundingly secular and I think with this um, resurgence in contemporary society of religion in all its manifestations I think it's going to be a kind of opportunity for today's scholars to go back and look at the work we did and maybe even pull it apart and say wait they were being way 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 too simple and the one thing I will say that I, I think is pretty clear to me is that we view medicine as a form of religion um and we worship medicine we worship science it's just that you know we consider that object objective and somehow different than religious beliefs but i honestly believe that uh science is something we believe in too and it's it's not to say that it shouldn't be believed in it's you know i'm not discrediting that but i think that there's faith in technology and science and in a lot of things that's similar kinds it's just we're in a different society with more kind of different moving parts where our belief system now uh, goes to science and what does that mean when you pull out the little strands of what it means to believe and what it means to hope and what it means to change.
0: So do you see a difference then in belief system in religion and belief in science? Is the actual belief different? Because the subject is obviously different, one being religion based on certain institutions and dogma, and then the other being the sort of scientific process.
1: I think, you know, the average person um, living in the world really doesn't understand that much about how science works. So I think there's a lot of faith involved. Um, I think scientists obviously understand that faith. And I also think that... You know, just as as religious people, you know, that higher up in the, you know, hierarchies of religion and, and all of that, they understand faith in the ways that the faithful don't understand it. Um, but I think the average person, you know, we have decided as a society, and with good reasons and with valid historical reasons, to cast our belief systems with science. And again, I wanna reiterate that I'm not saying You know, we shouldn't believe in science and that it's all ridiculous and superstitious. What I want to convey is that we as a society have to come up with explanations, like every society does, about how things work. We have to come up with, uh, you know... um, uh, a sense of faith where we can say, um, when I turn on that light switch, it's going to go on. When I flip it and it goes off, then, you know, it's going to go off. But do I know? Could I explain that? I know it's something to do with electricity, whatever, but I don't know how electricity functions. And you go deeper and deeper in, and it doesn't make as much sense. And the science is interesting because you, the further up and the more abstract you get in science, the more it looks like religion. And scientists themselves will say, look, We don't know why this works. We have a great hunch that this works, but honestly, we're not sure, you know? And so that's not to say, again, I don't want to discredit science. I think it's huge. I'm just saying that the belief structures are there, um, and we need to think about the way that we put our faith in something like science.
0: Right, especially in desperate situations, and that's something that you cover quite a bit. I imagine mm. that anyone, rather, whether they're turning to religion or science when they're in the midst of this cholera epidemic and people are dying all around them, that there is a desperate need to believe in something.
1: Oh, yeah, and they totally hedged their bets. They didn't make choices. They believed in it all. They, you know, you kind of do your Hail Marys and do all that, and then you, uh, you put on the little... Uh, uh, thing that the scientists say is going to help, you know, um, uh, you know, protect you from cholera. If, if a few doctors are saying that, if your doctor doesn't know what they're doing, but they're a doctor and they tell you to do something, you say, "Oh, okay, sure, I'll try that." You know, it, the desperation is—it can be kind of ingenious. I mean, you, you have to, you know, grasp at what's what's at hand, and you work with that.
0: Yeah, wasn't it Voltaire, I believe, who went on his deathbed? person asked him will you accept jesus and renounce the devil and voltaire said now is not a time to be making enemies yeah that might have been a, it's a great it's
1: a great story but it's exactly the spirit of it yeah that you know and just as i would think that you know people that are very very religious and you know wouldn't you know except in maybe some extreme circumstances would probably not say i don't believe in science science doesn't work you know the you know we we do what we can we're we're you know products of the times we live in and these times are uh scientific times but they're also religious times and so where do those intersections happen and what how do how does each individual person make sense of that and you know allow us to kind of go forward and survive
0: right So is there anything we haven't covered either in terms of your work on disability or on disease that you want to touch on or leave our viewers with? Or I should say listeners.
1: Listeners, yeah. Um, I think, I wish that people in French history would do a lot more with disability. It's still mind-boggling to me that there hasn't been more work on disability history, especially in French history. Um, there's some, but not enough, and it's, it's just a surprise to me. I, I published this article in the American Historical Review in 19, uh, no, sorry 2003, and it's called Disability History, Why We Need Another Other, And um, it's a foundational article for disability history, disability historians. It's, you know, I'm proud of it. It's whatever. But I'm really kind of dismayed that somebody hasn't come along and surpassed it. And this article is, uh, you know, it's getting on. uh, I've got to do my math, but how many years? (laughs) Um, You know, it's getting, it's getting, the number of years, it's 2013. So that's 10. uh, It's over 15 years. This article has been out. And people haven't surpassed it. Why is that? There's so many other fields where, you know, an article like that comes out, and eventually, you know, people are just swarming all over it and trying to change it and pick it apart. And da da. da. And it's not. I'm not saying my article was so great. It's that people have been too uh, timid about trying to, um, you know, weave disability into things they know already. And Study it on its own terms and see that it's totally central to absolutely everything. And I'll I'll close. I play a parlor game with people um, sometimes with disability history. I'll do it with my students. I'll do it with colleagues, whatever. And I'll say, you give me a topic with uh, any topic you want, and I will guarantee you 100% there will be a central disability angle to it. It doesn't matter what it is. You give it to me, and I will find it. And I barely ever been proven wrong it's
0: on that note i do have one final question for you then you mentioned the concept of otherness basically western societies have tended to see white heterosexual abled men as the default and everything else as an aberration do you see the communities that you study such as the blind communities actually countering the concept of otherness in 19th century france
1: what do you mean by countering it? What do you?
0: I guess by essentially positing themselves as something that is normal, something that oh, yeah. isn't just a a deviation from this what either God or what uh, good science would create.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No. The 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 whole like impulse and you know that you see that emerge in the notion of mainstreaming in education and things where. You basically say, um, you know, uh, I don't see like other people, but that doesn't mean I, you know, uh, don't have something to contribute and that I don't have value to our society. And, you know, I'm basically like you in most situations, and maybe a few other, you know, few unique ways in other situations. But it's not, it's not the same thing. Um, there's a. Uh, disability studies scholar named Joseph Grigley who um, writes about deaf people. And he describes deaf and disabled people as a native other. And I think it's a sure. really interesting uh, interesting concept to kind of put those things together. Um, the other thing I want to point out is, um, you know it's the, the current statistics about people with disabilities are one in 4 people in the yeah. united states one in 4 and france isn't that far behind so that we're talking like and this is significant disability it's not just you know like oh i have a ingrown toenail or you know whatever so this is this is an enormous enormous group that people are not talking about and not thinking about and there's so many more books on the you know, weavers from one particular region in, you know, some far corner of France than there are about like one-fifth of the population. How does this happen? It's just wild to me.
0: Well, hopefully when this podcast goes out, more up-and-coming scholars will do disability studies because after all there's a pretty huge field to mine from well yeah
1: yeah it's a great way it's a great opportunity because a lot of people in french history a lot of the fields in french history both literal and metaphorical and symbolic and everything have been mined to within a plowed to within an inch of their life there's so much that's been done on everything and this one is just nobody's doing it what you know or very few i'm not going to discredit the, the people out there that are doing this work but it's it's mind-blowing to me
0: well until then i suppose the field belongs to you so thank you well, very me much. and
1: fr- me and my closest friends in france and and others yes yeah, so there's people and, doing it
0: you and your uh, brunch group <laughs> all right thank you very much As always, donations keep the podcast going, so if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support.